Welcome. West Legal Ed Center and Celesk welcome you to today's program titled Cross-Examination Made Simple. Use the Participation tab at the bottom of your screen to send a question to the speaker. Program materials are available under the Supplements tab. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's program, Michael DeBliss. Thank you for joining us today. I'll now turn the program over to Mike. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike DeBliss, and um, it is a pleasure for me to be presenting on the topic of cross-examination today. Uh, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I am a trial lawyer through and through, and uh, while these days I've been practicing in areas outside of um, my ballywick of criminal defense, um, I still keep coming back to criminal defense as um, the area that I uh, pride myself most um, as an attorney and that um, I uh, seek to zealously advocate uh, all the time for my clients. I was going to start with some famous quotes, but um, instead I thought I'd uh, share um, a story with you. Um, my story goes back to 2007 when I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed public defender um, who was uh, idealistically um, determined to stand up for those who had no voice. Um, I wanted very badly to be like my dad, who was also a criminal defense attorney and who had a reputation as a zealous advocate for the disenfranchised. Um, I was in my first trial and I was preparing to make my closing argument. Um, the next decade of my client's life depended um, <clears throat> very simply on how convincingly I could make it. The judge had called a short recess. Um, I was pacing up and down the hallway with a huge knot in my stomach, uh, not unlike the knot that um, many uh, attorneys have when they're getting ready for that big moment. I watched the jury walk in and I heard the judge utter those frightful words that still haunt me to this day. Um, he said, ladies and gentlemen, you will now hear closing arguments. Um, and he said, Mr. DeBliss, you can begin. The fear at that moment was so palpable that it shot through my body like a bolt of lightning. My heart was racing and I had a lump in my throat the size of a crater. Um, my voice even cracked before I could get out the salutation, ladies and gentlemen. The next thing I knew, I was standing there frozen like a deer in headlights. Several seconds that felt like an eternity went by in silence. The seconds felt like minutes. All the while I could feel my palm sweating and my hand shaking like a leaf. Uh, the gaze of every living soul in that courtroom were on me. Uh, the jury, the, uh, my friends and my colleagues that were in the courtroom, they were all staring at me, waiting for me to utter my first few words. In that moment, I wish that the ground would have opened and I could have been swallowed up into a dark abyss, never to be seen or heard from again. The thought of enduring yet another second of this was agonizing. But the worst had yet to come. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see my client's face, and it was frozen in horror. As hard as it was for me to come to terms with my own shame, I now had a much larger problem to deal with, the feeling that I had let my client down. 
I tried to regain my composure, but the only sounds that I could mumble were unintelligible ums and ahs. But then something strange happened. Out of nowhere, I blurted out, I wish that I wasn't so afraid. Now, this mortifies me to this day. The expression on the faces of the jurors was one of pure astonishment. While they could see and feel the physical manifestations of my fear, the last thing in the world they expected me to do was to admit it. They watched and they waited. I continued, let me tell you what my fear is. I care a lot for Johnny. My fear is that I won't be able to make the kind of argument to you that he deserves, that I just won't measure up. My fear in that moment slowly began to recede and the argument took on a life of its own. I no longer had to struggle in order to find the words to express all that was welling up inside of me. Instead, they just came gushing out like a spring. When I finished, I sat down and I was utterly spent. Um, I like to run marathons and I, uh, I often compare that feeling to what it, what it feels like after running a 10K, um, but I was even more exhausted after this scenario than I was when I had run 10Ks in the past. My heart was still racing. However, I still, I, I no longer had that state of panic. Um, don't get me wrong though, the argument was far from perfect. However, it was an argument that to this day, I can say was as real and honest as I could be in that moment. Now, I learned many valuable lessons from this experience. And um, so you, there is a point to all of this. I don't want you to think that I'm just sharing this for no uh, reason whatsoever. Um, my first uh, learning experience that came from this was the how I was experiencing that proverbial fight or flight response that we all experience at some point in the courtroom. Um, some would say that by confessing my fear, I acted cowardly and I chose flight. Um, no doubt these are the same folks that would equate emotional vulnerability to weakness. As for me, I take a different approach and my takeaway is that I feel as though I confronted my fear head on and stared it down until it retreated. Second, it taught me something that I had never learned in law school, and that was the power of emotional vulnerability and how the confession of fear is perhaps the most exquisite expression of vulnerability. Finally, it taught me about the power of storytelling in the courtroom to draw the jury in. And um, that's the theme that I want to um, really uh, focus on in the course of this presentation. So let's chat a little bit about storytelling. Um, when you think about it, the very essence of a trial is a story. It's a story of a human experience. There's basically two uh, competing sides. One side, if you're in a criminal case, the state has their version. And if you're the defense, your client, and you're representing a client, um, they have their version. Story, I've come to learn, is the most powerful tool of persuasion. And that's because people think in terms of a story. Now, I'd like to um, just cite a quick example from a childhood story. You might have even heard this before when you were young. 
It starts out like this. Once upon a time in a city called New Orleans, there was a boy who lived and breathed and dreamt music. He loved the sound of the trumpet, but he couldn't afford a trumpet. This is the story of Louis Armstrong, a poor boy who could not afford a trumpet, who became the greatest trumpeter of all time. Why is storytelling so powerful? And why does it even apply to this presentation? Well, I would argue that we are telling our story not only in opening statement, but throughout the course of a trial, especially in cross-examination. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But getting back to the question, why is storytelling so powerful? Well, it's the principal means by which we have taught one another from the beginning of time. Um, if you, do, if you uh, do some research, you'll find that um, going back to the time, prehistoric times, uh, the story of great hunts and terrible battles were passed along from generation to generation and became the history of the tribe. The structure of the story is very natural. It permits the speaker to speak easily, openly, powerfully from the heart, and it draws the listener in immediately. It's an antidote to the worst poison that can be injected into any argument, and that's boredom. Finally, we're moved by a story because it touches us in very soft, unprotected places where our decisions are always made. I feel that storytelling is no longer an optional technique in the courtroom, and here's why. First, jurors are not fresh canvases that we can paint. Um, they arrive at the courtroom with their own experiences, handed down frames of reference and biases. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, we're human. We are not infallible. And we carry these with us, sometimes unknowingly, and sometimes we'll even deny that we carry them with us. But subconsciously, they happen and they come to the surface at all times. We're always making judgments about other people when we meet them. That's why there's first impressions. As a lawyer, you must be able to address disparate jurors and tell a story that will impart a single perspective to the entire jury. Um, I call it a narrative framework um, for which the jury can view the evidence. Second, and this gets to very, this gets to the nuts and bolts of it, and it's a very practical reason. Put yourself in the shoes of the jury. They have been herded like cattle into an unfamiliar and intimidating place called the courtroom, which they soon come to find out is like a Roman Colosseum. They're stripped of their smartphones and any other connection to the outside world, and they are squeezed elbow to elbow into a rectangular box um, with, where they are sitting um, next to perfect strangers. Um, so if you think about that, um, you know, you realize that today more than ever, the impact that that has on people. I mean, I, for one, am somebody who can't be away from my smartphone for three minutes. And yet we heard these jurors into court, put them into this small, small um, jury, rectangular, um, uh, rectangular space, elbow to elbow to strangers, and we stripped them of their electronic devices. So um, no longer can they check their text messages. No longer can they take can they check their Facebook 
uh, messenger. Um, they are now ours, so to speak, for the next six or seven hours. Then we bombard them with legalese, which is not easily understood by lay people. And if that's not bad enough, we then bombard them with a torrent of evidence that comes in bit by bit through oral testimony and physical exhibits, often out of order and disrupted by continuous objections, sidebars, and removal of the jury from the courtroom so that legal arguments can be made and ruled upon outside of their presence. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I'm going to use a reference um, that is that many of you might be able to relate to. When you're watching a Netflix program, and let's say you're you know you're working your way through um, season two of Breaking Bad, and all of a sudden episode four um, deviates from where episode three left off, and it does a flashback to an earlier time period. I don't know about you, but I get flustered. I literally start panicking and sweating, thinking that I have somehow missed one of the episodes in the order. And my brain just doesn't know how to deal with it. And I do experience a little bit of panic in that moment. Okay, that's when it is intentionally done by a producer in Hollywood. Think about when it's happening on the scale that it's happening on in a courtroom in a trial. As I just said, the evidence comes in bit by bit through oral testimony and physical exhibits that are often out of order. Um, and to add insult to injury, we as lawyers, you know, don't have the experience that Hollywood producers have. So we're not um, very well schooled in the ways of presenting a story um, the way it would unfold in drama and on TV and on the big screen. So this is enough to be to make the jury even more unnerved and to make them even more confused and to make them even less able to follow uh, our stories. We also have the problem, and this is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, with limited attention spans today. Um, I've done some research, and the studies are just sweeping. They've shown that a speaker has 20 seconds or less to capture an audience's attention before they look at the next post on their Facebook page. Even though a jury doesn't have their smartphones, they'll substitute daydreaming for looking at their social media accounts. So, you know, we can't assume that because they don't have their electronic devices that they're not zoning out at any moment in time. So I like to say that we as attorneys have to day trade attention. It's all about attention. And it runs counter to what we've learned in law school because in law school, we're trained on how to make cogent arguments. We're learned about, you know, how to carry our themes um, through. Uh, these are all critical aspects of a case. However, there's other things that are going on inside a courtroom um, that are even more basic and rudimentary than those things. And before we can even get to theory, theme, and um, you know, making our point, we have to break through this wall of attention and get their attention. Because if they're not paying attention, none of this means anything. To make matters worse, we have an opposing side. So it's not as clean as one side telling their side of the story. There's two sides. The opposing side, of course, is advancing a completely different version of the story. So to say that the jury is in sensory overload would be a complete understatement. 
The jury, sadly, is left with the unenviable task of sorting through this mess and somehow making sense out of it. Um, and I will say this, to the extent that you can get your theory and theme across to them in a way that they understand, um, you'll get more points for that because confusion and torment is something that they don't like. It makes them nervous. It makes them anxious. It makes all of us nervous and anxious. So if you can tell a cogent story and get your client side out there in a way that's easy for them to digest, they will be eternally grateful. But let's get back to this issue. How do they sort through all of this mess? They begin to imagine a story from the very get-go. They interpret facts to fit into similar frameworks that they're used to. In other words, they instinctive, instinctively begin imagining a story out of necessity. Effective trial advocacy requires tapping into this narrative instinct by suggesting a powerful story from the jury for, from the very start. If your story rings true, the jury will interpret the evidence to fit your case. When this happens, it's difficult for the jury to see these same facts through a competing account of what happened. Witnesses will be viewed in the context of how they provide validation of your story, and witnesses who contradict your story will be viewed with a healthy dose of skepticism. Third, without a story, the jury may judge your client based on nothing more than the crime itself or the bare fact that they've killed or raped or stolen. Um, as is clearly obvious, um, if they do that, then um, it's, uh, it's a slow guilty plea and it's just a matter of um, time when they convict. Uh, so one who commits a heinous crime is very hard to care about. Um, stated simply, it's too easy to point and to accuse and to hate on the bare facts of the crime. Um, and to rely so heavily on the bare facts relieves the um, jury of the responsibility of understanding. And I feel that that's part of our responsibility as a criminal defense attorney to provide more and to fill in the uh, hole, so to speak. And so I'd argue there is no such thing as a set of bare facts to tell the whole story. There are always two worlds that exist in a trial. One is the world that is obvious and that we all see the bare facts. The other is a world that we don't see that's going to take some probing to um, unearth. Uh, that's the world that is personal and um, intimate to your client. Uh, that's the world in which our client lives. As much as I hate to use absolutes, uh, when, def when defending a person accused of a crime, we must never, ever allow him or her to be judged on the bare facts. Fourth, storytelling helps the jury to empathize with our client. When the jury goes to deliberate, what we want to do on some level is to um, have them leave thinking, well, I may not have done what Billy did. And by the way, if the if a jury question comes from the jury and they're using your client's first name instead of defendant or DEF period, you know that you've done um, you've you've you, you've made some um, crossroads and some inroads um, because it's easy for the jury to 
uh, convict when they're dealing with a defendant, but when they get to know your client personally and they refer to him or her by their first name, that's half the battle right there. So you want to get them thinking, I may not have done what Bill did, but I can at least understand why he did it. Um, as humans, we measure the validity of what we hear by comparing it with our own life experiences. So while we may not have experienced or gone through what um, Billy went through, you know, we can compare what he went through with our experiences, with our life experiences. And maybe the jury knows somebody who has gone through something similar to our client, maybe not on the same scale, maybe not as far as having committed a criminal offense, but can they relate to somebody who's an addict? And um, would that be helpful to your case in the sense that your client is an addict? The bottom line here is that a story that is complete, consistent, and conforms to our notions of common sense allows the jury to relate to it on a personal level. And so, like I said, um, even if the jury hasn't had a similar experience to your client, they've more than likely experienced similar emotions. Finally, the, the storytelling elevates the credibility of the attorney to that of a rock star. Um, to become good storytellers and effective trial lawyers, and like I said, I believe that in 2022, we have no other choice but to, we have to now accept what we once learned to reject and take up um, what we once set aside. That is the human drama and getting to know uh, what's happening in the courtroom beyond just the facts of the case and the defense and the theories and the themes. What makes this, what makes the jury tick? How do we view the jury? And I can go off on so many tangents right now. Uh, one I want to just address briefly. That and that is changing the way you look upon the jury. As a criminal defense attorney, I've often um, gone into a gone into trial at the very least being apathetical about my feelings toward the jury and at the very worst thinking that they hate me. And that in turn provoked me to feel a certain way about them, which would inevitably come out in the way I address them. And I've come to find out through not just being a lawyer, but also um, through being an actor, that the audience doesn't want to see you fail. The jury doesn't want to see you fail. Think about how many times you sat in a packed theater um, and maybe watching a Broadway play. How many times have you sat there and, and um, wished that the protagonist in the play comes out and that his voice squeaks or that the first, um, uh, the first note that he sings comes out, you know, um, broken. We don't want to see that happen. We're rooting for the actors on the stage. We want to see them go through an experience. That's why we're there. We're looking for them, uh, by the way, not to be storytellers, but to be story livers. We want to see them live the story. We want to see them be painted into a corner. And we want to see how they deal with, um, you know, the worst, their worst day, perhaps, on the planet. Um, and the same thing applies in the courtroom. The jury, no matter how bad the case 
might be and how heinous the crime. The jury doesn't want to see you fail. They're rooting for you. They want to see you succeed. And I think if you change your mind shift and you look at it that way um, as a jury as being your friends, you're going to be more willing to take risks um, to connect with them, which is what we're looking for. Now we're going to delve into cross-examination. Uh, so all this talk about storytelling, um, how does it apply to cross? Well, even in cross-examination, and I would dare say, especially in cross-examination, we're telling our client's story. Essential to a good cross is the ability to exercise control over the witness at will. So now we're getting into a part of the presentation where we are going to have some mechanical rules. Um, and there's, it's inevitable, um, unfortunately. We have to establish a framework to work um, inside because all of this stuff that I've been talking about right now is really great. It's inspirational and, you know, it's, um, you know, it can help you catapult into the next trial, but we do need to have a framework. We do have to have a methodology for how we approach our work. So again, um, exercising control over a witness at will is critical. Um, succinct questions with laser beam accuracy are necessary. Now, it is easy, and I'll address this stereotype, it's easy to attach a negative stereotype to control. But I want to emphasize here that we're not using control in the sense of domineering, intimidating, or bossy. Um, control definitely does not need to be hostile. The objective is to conduct a smooth flowing fact by fact cross without distracting verbal mannerisms, one that has a rhythm to it. And we're going to get into a useful method. But one thing I want to say about smooth flowing fact by fact cross. I mean um, to the extent we can control our cross. No doubt there are going to be objections that are raised by the other side, and we've got to deal with that. And um, I have to, I dare say, I get ruffled at times when um, my adversary objects um, throughout a cross examination because it breaks up the momentum. And, and now we've got to go to sidebar. We've got to argue you know the evidential merits of you know of something and that might take as long as 10 or 15 minutes it might mean that the jury has to be excused and that uh, oral arguments are placed on the record and then afterwards we have to come back and uh, resume from where we left off with the cross-examination so um, a point that i'd like to make here is how critical it is to have um, good concentration um, because if you get flustered easily it's going to be very difficult to find your way back to um, your cross after you get done uh, with the litany of oral arguments that um, might have been raised by your adversary um, so to the extent that we can control our cross-examination we want to do so by um, conducting it smoothly and fact by fact and it is, it is good to get a rhythm to it, to the extent that we can control it. Obviously, things out, outside of our control, like the objections raised by the prosecutor, we're just going to have to roll with. So the following is a use, useful method. I suggest asking only leading questions. There's a few reasons why. First, 
any information delivered to the jury must come from you as the attorney and not from the witness. You want the witness to merely confirm the information with a monosyllabic yes. At the risk of being crass, the witness should be viewed as nothing more than a stooge who responds with one answer to each question. When the information comes from you, your credibility rises in the eyes of the jury. And that's because of something that social scientists have found um, to relate to um, speaking in, the in a narrative. Um, they found that when a person has a platform to speak and to explain, their credibility naturally rises. And uh, that is the same case in a courtroom. When a witness is speaking and explaining their side of something, the jury is pulled in and they're listening. All the while, the credibility of that witness is going up. So if you are cross-examining a witness and you ask an open-ended question, you're more than likely going to get an open-ended answer. And the witness, if they're well-schooled and well-trained, such as a special agent or a detective from a prosecutor's office, they will go on, they will take that, um, they will take that soft pitch and hit it outside of Yankee Stadium um, because you're giving them the opportunity which um, they are told they may not even get on cross to speak in the narrative. They're warned by the prosecutor during prep that that the, mostly that the questions will be in the form of leading questions and that they'll have to answer them very directly. But when they get the opportunity on cross-examination to speak in the narrative, they'll be talking for the next five minutes. All the while, their credibility will be going up and yours will be going down. The other thing that's going on in the courtroom that is very subtle is that when you are doing the questioning as a cross-examiner and the witness is um, testifying in a narrative, your credibility is going down proportionately to their credibility going up. Why? Because it's happening on your watch and it's almost as if you are endorsing, I dare say, what they say by way of having asked the open-ended question and now being silenced to hear the answer. It's one thing if you've asked a leading question and they've been non-responsive and now they're going on and on and on. And we're going to talk about how to deal with a runaway witness. However, it's another thing if you fell into the trap of asking an open-ended question and now they're just, like I said, swinging it and knocking it out and hitting it out of the stadium. You, there's nobody to blame but yourself. And like I said, it's happening on your watch and the jury is um, quite aware of that happening on your watch. It's expected that that witness being hostile is going to testify in the narrative when the prosecutor is asking the questions. It's a whole nother thing when it's happening on your watch. And like I said, like it or not, you are endorsing the answer when it's on your watch and you've asked the question. So you want to be, you want to always, always um, have the credit, have more credibility than a hostile witness. 
And that's why we suggest these leading questions. And we want the jury to say to themselves, this attorney is forthcoming and honest and well-prepared. We can trust him. Second, when the information comes from you, it will be presented in the form desired by you. Third, the witness will be discouraged from explaining and will develop a habit of responding obediently. Um, and we have ways of culling that out, one of which is called paper training the puppy, uh, which is a beautiful um, thing that was, uh, that was uh, brainstormed by Daryl Danzinger in the National Criminal Defense College. We'll chat about that in a little bit. So here are some examples of leading questions. Uh, and some criticisms of uh, questions that I would not consider to be leading. What are you wearing? Well, that's obvious. It's an open-ended question. Are you wearing socks? That's a little bit better, but it's still not leading. You don't want to invite the witness to volunteer information. Question, is that, sh is that a shirt you have on? Still insufficient for establishing control over the witness. You want to avoid beginning questions with the words are, is, do, did. Question, do you have or you have on a shirt, don't you? That's great. And it doesn't have to be exactly like that. For example, here are some variations. Isn't it true that you do have, don't you? It is, it is a fact that, isn't it? Now, you can notice as I go through this that I'm also using something very subtle, and that's voice inflection. Um, it's something that we don't get any training in um, in law school, but that we that we do all the time in normal conversations that we have with our friends and family. And I don't want you to lose that in a courtroom. In fact, I want you to bring more of that into the courtroom um, because again, we are, our jobs are to keep the attention of the jury, and we don't want to lose them uh, to the extent that we can, you know, um, rely on things from everyday life that we use all the time that draw people in and that make people attracted to us, um, you know, as humans. We need to keep that in our arsenal and uh, make sure that we're using it all the time. Uh, one caveat about the phrase is, isn't it true that you do have, don't you? It is a fact that, isn't it? Like, you know, here's the thing. We don't talk like this in real life when we're speaking amongst friends and family. It's just too formal. And sometimes a jury might even see it as being snobbish. Uh, these are nothing more than filler words that have been around since uh, time immemorial and that were used by, um, you know, lawyers um, back in the 20th century, uh, they're really nothing more than a crutch um, that's used to buy more time to think of what we're going to say next. So let's try to take some risk and not use these fillers if we don't have to. As the great Terry McCarthy once said, you want to talk to the jury the way you talk to a friend in a bar. Now, you might have noticed that I've inserted question marks at the end of these phrases. This is how, of course, it would look in a transcript, but don't be tricked into believing that they are questions that are being asked in the inquisitive sense or that you need to put emphasis on the last syllable of the last word so that it sounds like a question. And I realize this is counterintuitive, but 
what I've come to find out, especially with a hostile witness, is that even with my short leading questions, if I put emphasis on the last syllable to make it sound like a question, even though it um, is suggestive of a yes or no, immediate yes or no answer, that gives the witness, especially a hostile one, like I said, the opportunity to explain um, or to go on beyond yes or no. And we're not looking for that. So you can actually ask the, these proverbial questions as statements. And sometimes it's easier to get the yes answer, the monosyllabic answer that we're looking for when you ask them as straight statements than when it is um, you put emphasis on the last syllable to make it sound like a question. There are times, however, that call for uh, voice inflection. Um, and we'll chat about that in a second. Um, this is especially critical when you've got a runaway witness that doesn't respond yes when the simple answer is yet yes. Uh, you may have to repeat the question that you asked um, just a short time before that. And um, you know, you might have to repeat that question just a short time that you asked before that and then put special emphasis on certain uh, words um, to make it certain that you mean business and that you're not going to accept anything less than the desired response. Now, what if the witness doesn't confirm your affirmative statements? In other words, um, we have a runaway witness. Do you encourage her with an occasional don't you or right? Yes, I'd argue that you can do that. Now, does this mean that it is never appropriate to ask an open-ended question of an adverse witness? Not really. Um, I don't prescribe to rules that are as rigid and as inflexible as never or, um, you know, uh, words like that uh, don't really enter into my uh, lexicon. However, a rule as rigid as one that inflexibly prohibits inquiry into an area of incomplete knowledge may deprive an attorney of potentially helpful information. Uh, I'm not a big proponent of asking an open-ended question of an adverse witness at a trial. However, I am a proponent of asking an open-ended question of an adverse witness at a probable cause hearing or at a hearing where the discovery, at least at this point, is relatively uh, incomplete and where um, it would be helpful to me to know some additional facts. Um, and so I may well ask an open-ended question of an adverse witness at a uh, pretrial hearing, such as a probable cause hearing, or even at a suppression hearing, if I find that um, this issue is important to the case and that the discovery hasn't answered it. When can you explore an area in which your knowledge is lacking? If your questions, and this is really the fundamental rule, if your questions will do no harm to your credibility or to your case, it may be all right to proceed. Decisions about whether to initiate a certain line of questioning should be made by balancing the good versus the harm. It's a balancing test, uh, no different than most other tests in the law. This doesn't mean that you will have the luxury of cogitating over it for a day. You might have a split second to make the decision, but that's how things are in the courtroom. 
Um, we have split seconds to make the decision and the appellate attorneys when they're reviewing the transcripts have days and weeks to cogitate over things and to um, you know, uh, do Sunday morning quarterbacking on everything that we did, but that's the nature of our jobs. Um, in the back of my mind, I can hear the clever words of my evidence professor echoing, when you know, you want to be the one to tell the jury. When you don't know, you should not pretend you do. Now for the second rule. This is the one fact per question rule. Why do we do that? Well, let me give you some examples. Here's the first. You have on an orange and yellow striped shirt, don't you? That is, believe it or not, five questions. Um, the first is confirming that the witness had on a shirt. The second is that it was more than one color. The third is that the color was orange. The fourth is that the other color is yellow. And the fifth is that the orange and yellow are arranged in stripes. I like this to a long sausage that has been um, hastily thrown on a platter without being carved up into those um, small chipolatas. It overwhelms even the hungriest stomach. It's better to establish each of these points separately. Think about it. If the, if the witness answers no, what part of the question did he disagree with? He might be quarreling with one fact in the broad question or multiple facts, but you'll never know. Is he denying that he had a shirt on? Is he denying that um, one of the colors was orange? Is he um, denying that the orange and yellow were arranged in stripes? You know, who knows? It's uh, a vague question and you got an answer, a vague answer that you don't even know um, what part of it it negates. So very simply, a negative answer is ambiguous. When one fact is posed per question, the witness is forced to agree to each separate fact. In addition, greater emphasis is achieved when progression to the ultimate point occurs steadily and gradually. So let's compare. We take that example and um, we chop it up into chipolatas. The first part would be, you have on a shirt, right? The second would be, it has two colors. The third would be orange. And yes, one word can be a question. You don't have to string it out any more than that. Four, and yellow, five. And the orange and yellow are arranged in stripes. And so there you go. You have five facts that you've now established in five separate leading questions. And the beauty of this is that this actually is consistent with storytelling. Even though we have reduced the questions to as little as one word, such as the third one being orange, it is easier for the jury to digest a cross-examination where one fact comes out and is uh, confirmed and it's easier for them to hear the story than it is to ask the long sausage of a question that has five separate facts. And interestingly enough, um, Terry McCarthy used to uh, show us transcripts of his cross-examinations of adverse witnesses. And if you were to take all of the questions that he asked on cross and um, 
and delete all of the answers uh, from the detective or from the special agent, um, you would have his whole, the summary of his whole um, theory and theme for that witness in three or four paragraphs. So it would all make sense and it would come, it would be uh, shared as a story. So if you were to read just the questions um, that he asked of the witness, it would be told in a story format in a way that's easy to understand and it would clearly and concisely contain the theory and the theme for that witness. Rule number three, know the answer. Example, your belt is leather. Criticism, be careful. Um, and this is subtle and nuanced, but leather and vinyl look alike. You want to be careful because you don't want the witness saying no. Um, question, your belt is leather or a leather-like material. That's much safer. Next, you want, in rule number four, you want to avoid characterizations and conclusions. For example, your shirt is preppy, right? It's too, um, uh, how can I put it? Um, uh, preppy lends itself way too much to subjective interpretation. In the witness's opinion, he might not be ready to sport this shirt on the cover of Esquire magazine, and he might reject the suggestion that his shirt is making a fashion statement. He might be, become so indignant and offended by this that it becomes difficult to rein him in after. Try instead, question, your shirt is predominantly blue? Second, it has white letters embroidered across the front. Third, the letters are raised. Fourth, they are made of a soft material. Fifth, they form a word. Abercrombie? Be cautious about beginning any question with the word so or therefore. Questions like these should be reserved for closing argument. The infamous one question too many usually begins with so or therefore. What is the one question too many? Oh, I love this. Um, many of you might remember the infamous nose bite case from law school. Uh, no less than Abraham Lincoln was the criminal defense attorney. He cross-examined, and not many people know this, but Abe Lincoln was a criminal defense attorney um, before he turned politician. He was cross-examining the prosecutor's witness. Initially, he brought out that the witness was birdwatching. Way to go, Abe. Then Lincoln suggested to the witness that he, the witness, had not seen the defendant bite off the victim's nose. The witness agreed. Now, we are told by Irving Younger that Lincoln should have stopped and sat down, but he continued and violated the sacred commandment of asking the one question too many. Lincoln's last question to the witness, the one question too many was, quote, so if you do not, if you did not see him bite the nose off, how do you know he bit it off? The witness responds, quote, I saw him spit it out. <laughs> In other words, Lincoln should have simply stopped after establishing that the witness didn't see the nose being bitten off. This is a great story, and it makes the point for the one question too many commandment. However, it has many shortcomings. For starters, the prosecutor gets to do something called 
redirecting the witness. That means that after cross-examination, the prosecutor can stand back up and attempt to, how can I say this, um, rehabilitate the witness. And what will the prosecutor's first question be? You guessed it. If you did not see Ned bite off the nose, how do you know he bit it off? In the first instance, when Lincoln asked the one question too many, he of course looked foolish. In the second instance, when Lincoln observed the commandment and it was left to the prosecutor to bring out this damaging information, Lincoln looked like he was hiding something. This would have caused the jury to distrust him. And remember that one of our foremost goals as an attorney in the courtroom is to maintain credibility and to be and and at all costs be as credible as possible because once the jury distrusts you then it's like false in one false in all they're not going to believe you anymore second we're never told what are the characteristics of the one question too many so in rule the rule here is demand the answer to which you are entitled, which is yes. So if you ask the question, your shirt is blue and the witness answers, I guess so. You may want to try repeating the question. If this doesn't work, eliminate alternatives. Your shirt isn't red. It isn't green. It isn't red. It's blue. And what you can see happening here is that it gets to the point of absurdity. So if the witness begins to, if the witness denies uh, or gives you difficulty when you ask um, these alternative questions, the jury is going to see straight through it. So don't you be the one to lose your cool here if that happens. Um, realize that the jury, you know, is seeing right through this witness and it, and, and, and acknowledge the fact that, you know, you've made your point. Um, but one thing that I tend to use is I do try to use inflection. So while I might state your shirt is blue as a statement, if I get an answer like, I guess so, um, I might, before um, eliminating alternatives or closing the um, escape hatches, I might put some emphasis on the last syllable of the last word. Your shirt, or the second uh, word I might put emphasis on, your shirt is blue. And then if I'm still getting opposition, I might uh, work my way through the alternatives to um, show the jury how you know outlandish this is. Either you'll win or the witness will be the one who looks like a fool. The reason why this is important, even for the most benign question, is that it reinforces the concept of control. Now, what happens if you're sloppy and you let the response, I guess so, slide by without correction? Well, the message you will be sending the witness is that it's okay to diverge from yes. This will only get worse as the cross goes on. Don't forget the expression, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And most of the time, these are trained detectives and special agents, and these subtleties uh, will not escape them. They will capitalize on them. Um, 
the other thing I want to mention, and this is this whole concept in rule number five is what I had referred to earlier as what Daryl Danzinger from the National Criminal Defense College refers to as paper training a puppy dog. Uh, so for those of you who are dog lo lovers, um, it's uh, it's akin to having a, a puppy dog that um, is taken has taken over your house and um, unfortunately is going to the bathroom and you know eating the uh, furniture or chewing on the furniture because of their teething. Uh, you might take a newspaper, roll it up, and tap them on the nose with it. Well, the analogy here is the same for the hostile witness. Um, what we're doing here by using voice inflection when we have a witness who is giving us some trouble or closing escape hatches and using alternative questioning, questioning to show how uh, outrageous it is that they would um, deny saying yes to your question. What we're doing is we're paper training a witness so that um, later on they don't run afoul and they don't um, give us harder a harder time on what might be a more um, pivotal question that we ask. So while this question might seem utterly mundane, um, it's setting the course for what is to come, and we don't want the witness to think that they can get away with it because, uh, like I said, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Uh, before I get into rule number six, I have to read all of you something. Um, in order to comply with New York regulations, attorneys looking for CLE credit in New York will need to be able to provide a code. This code is not intended for the West Legal Ed Center audience, either live or on demand. I'm going to read this code to you twice and only twice, and I cannot repeat it or email it to you, so please do make note of it. The New York code number is M, as in the first letter of my first name, D, as in the first letter of my last name, and then 32178-90222. Again, the New York State code number is M D. 32178-90222. Uh, rule number six, use primacy and recency. In other words, start on a high note and end on a high note. Uh, most trial lawyers start cross with a salutation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll be the first one to acknowledge that I did it um, a lot in my closing arguments as well. Ladies and gentlemen, no, get right to it, um, especially if you've been conducting um, uh, jury uh, voir dire uh, by the attorneys. They already know who you are. They've heard your name. You don't need to um, go into salutations. Uh, get right to it. Uh, we don't want to greet the witness um, and, you know, try to be polite and civil uh, like we're asking them out for tea and trinkets. It sounds as if we're being, um, how can I put it? Um, you know, um, it, it's it's insincere um, and it's, um, it's overdoing it. Uh, this is yet another example. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. I hope you had a pleasant trip to the courthouse this morning. This is doing it to a witness, as you can see. Let me introduce myself. I'm John Smith. If you don't hear or understand me, stop me anytime and let me know. I'll repeat the question. This won't take long. 
the jury dreads this. They they just don't have the patience. Uh, keep in mind all that they have you know gone through since they've been sitting on this trial. They don't have the patience. They want you to get right to it. So you need to be well-crafted from the moment you stand up. If the jury could speak back from the jury box, they'd be screaming, get on with it, get on with it, let's go. So maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but you get the point. These arcane and formal incantations hurt rather than help our cross. Um, again, the jury wants a lawyer to jump right up into cross and deliver a message. This is what's meant by primacy. Now, there's also been research into primacy and recency. Again, primacy is what you say in the beginning and recency is what you say at the end. Social scientists have found that when an audience hears a story, they are more prone to remember what is said in the very beginning and then what is said at the very end. What happens in the middle, what happens after the first third, what happens at the, uh, the two-third mark oftentimes gets forgotten. Instead, it's what immediately happens up front and what immediately happens at the end. Knowing that, we now have to um, put the rubber to the road and we have to make use of this knowledge. Uh, we have, we can't use salutations at the very beginning because this is what the jury is going to remember front and foremost. We want to get right into, um, our, uh, cross or our direct, whatever it is that we are doing. Now, I'd like to make a slight digression into how I view cross, and I can't do it without resorting to a metaphor. Every cross has an organic flow. I like to view it in three segments. The first segment of a cross is the launch off the rocket pad. Now, you've, of course, seen rockets being launched, and it takes an enormous amount of kinetic energy to get that, to launch that rocket and to put it into um, the stratosphere. Most of the kinetic energy is, um, uh, is consumed in the takeoff. You see all the power. You see the flame shooting out. The rocket is hardly moving, and then slowly it begins its upward tra trajectory. The second segment is the booster rocket where you want to get out of the atmosphere. The third segment puts you into the stratosphere. The objective, of course, is to uh, launch it into orbit and not to fall back to Earth. That is the problem that I see for most cross-examining attorneys, including myself, staying in the stratosphere. I feel that we are doing an exceptional job of getting there, but then sustaining it is uh, where we get into some trouble. And I realized that one of the reasons why that's happening is because we have scripted our cross and there are unexpected things that happen in the course of a cross-examination. We cannot anticipate everything that the witness is going to say, even when we do our homework and we write it out so that we have these short leading questions. There are bound to be things that the witness says. And I think that 
this leads to the next issue. How can we continue to stay on script while not overlooking and failing to respond to things that happen during the course of the cross? Because like I said, you can't, you can't know ahead of time everything that the witness is going to say. And a lot of times the witness says things that we're not prepared for. And I fear that sometimes in the moment, um, we don't have the amount of time to know how to deal with that. And that's what leads us sometimes to shoot ourselves in the foot and ask perhaps uh, the one question too many, or perhaps um, getting a little bit hostile with the witness where we didn't need to. Um, so I, I feel this way. You can never stop listening and responding. No matter how well scripted you are, no matter how badly you want to get through your cross, you need to be open and receptive. Um, and you cannot ignore what you hear and what you get from the witness. Um, and as tempting as it is to tune them out and to be thinking about the next question that you want to ask, you need to try to force yourself to listen to the answer and not assume that it's going to be the monosyllabic yes or no. You need to listen and you need to listen like your life depends on it because every now and then you will get golden nuggets from the witness. And if you're listening and if you take in what they say, you will have your next question. It's not going to be evasive. It's not going to escape you. You will have your next question because you are so prepared for your case that you can come up with it on the spot. But you have to make sure under these rules that it's a safe question and that it's not going to open up Pandora's box. It's not going to do any harm to your client's case and it's not going to hurt your credibility. So, um, you know, those are the cardinal rules. And like I said, there are sometimes wonderful um, golden nuggets that get dropped by witnesses in the course of cross-examination that you never would have expected.